There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Singer-songwriter Judy Collins performs live at the Birchmere tonight in Alexandria, Virginia. We spoke earlier this year about her February show at Wolf Trap, recreating her first solo concert at New York City's Town Hall in 1964, as well as her biggest hits from both sides now to send in the clowns. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to be here. All right, so uh, in case some of our listeners uh, maybe don't remember, uh, remind us what the what the town hall, you know, 64 performance was and, and how you, you hooked up with Wolf Trap to stream it. Wolf Trap I've been at for many years, many, many times. I think in your history, you'll find Mrs. Schaus always said that I've been there for 25 years in a row or something. So I, I know Wolf Trap stages very well, but before I ever got to Wolf Trap, I sang at town hall it was my first solo concert in 1964, almost 60 years ago. And I was um, told by my record label president, Jack Holzman, that we should record it. And I had things that it was five months since JFK had been assassinated. I had lived in the village for about, uh, well, maybe eight months, 10 months, it hadn't been a year yet. And I was in the village, so I was surrounded by all these wonderful singer-songwriters, Bob Dylan and Tom Paxton and, and Shel Silverstein. And so I had a batch of new songs to me that I was starting to sing. But then my first town hall concert came along. It was March uh, 27th of 1964. And I was 24, I wasn't even 25 yet. And so that's the concert that we are repeating, uh, or I say recreating in a way, um, which will be broadcast uh, on the 12th, that's tomorrow, I think, the Saturday or Friday, uh, on, on uh, the Wolf Trap schedule and on the Town Hall schedule. So in this concert, I'm doing a number of uh, repeats, I'm doing Bob Dylan's great song, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, which is a significant piece of writing. It sort of goes along with um, with uh, To Kill a Mockingbird in terms of it setting the tone for what had been happening and unfortunately is still happening one way or another in terms of racism in this country. And I sang a number of Tom Paxton songs, which, I'll re which I've recreated and also um, Billy Ed Wheeler songs. So I, I had a wonderful experience talking about the 60s, about what was going on that year and what we were all going through. 
Awesome. And uh, just so our listeners know, you know, we're, we're referencing Town Hall. It's um, it's on West 43rd Street between 6th Avenue and Broadway up in Midtown Manhattan, a very famous venue. So where exactly that was where you did it in 64. Where where did you record this this new one? Are you are you going back to Town Hall? Yes. Same place. Same stage. The stage that was originally created or inhabited by the suffragettes in 19. 19- 21, 100 years ago. And I tell a little bit of the story of Town Hall because so many extraordinary artists have performed there. My teacher, Antonia Brico, I studied with for a number of years when I was a young girl and I played with her orchestra. And she was the first woman conductor of major symphonies in the world. Paul Robeson is whom I'm thinking of. Paul Robeson played there. The suffragettes opened it up. the, the, the stage itself has been the setting for many, many extraordinary events. And Dr. Brico, who was my teacher, and her first, by the way, her first gig was conducting the Berlin Philharmonic when she was 27, I think. It was in 1929, um, a few years before. She had her own orchestra in New York, and she performed on the stage of Town Hall. And she also had performances on uh, the stage of Carnegie Hall in New York. So the stage itself has been uh, the host to hundreds of incredible performances. And I've performed there a number of times in my life and I've watched other concerts there. I've seen Pete Seeger there. I've seen, I, I saw Dylan there before the concert in 64. I saw him in 62 in his first stage performance and I was sitting there with Jack Holzman and listening to the songs and Jack kept poking me in the arm and saying, okay, that one, that one, that one. And I think that I heard the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll there for the first time. That's so cool. I never knew that you saw Dylan that early. Well, remind our listeners how um, you made your way to New York in the first place. I know you were born in, in Seattle. Um, you know, how, how did that journey, you know, were you, were you listening to Woody Guthrie and Seeger and them and said, you know, I got to be part of that Greenwich Village scene or <laughs> how did that come about? I, I, did, I sort of came in the side door because I was a classical pianist and also a singer and I learned all the songs of Rodgers and Hart and from my father who had a radio show for 30 years and sang the great American songbook. So I was grown up, grew up doing a multi- a multifaceted arena of music. I played Mozart and Chopin and Debussy and Rachmaninoff. And then I sang in the church choirs and the choruses at school. I sang, I I had a job with the (laughs) Jack Blues dance band singing Wish You Were Here and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Laura and, and My Funny Valentine. And while I was practicing the piano every day for two hours or so, I was also, I had a little performance group, was more of, there were three of us, so it was a group, a trio, I suppose. I played the piano and sat at the piano and told the story of um, Little Red Riding Hood and my friends who were both two women now, they're women, they're still my best friends. uh, They performed, they were dancers. So they performed the stories of the Little Red Riding Hood. And we brought in our very tall friend, Peggy, 
to play the wood chopper. And we did this performance of Little Red Riding Hood starting in probably 1953 or four. We did it all over Denver, which is where I live. And we did it at the Ellis Club and the Kiwanis Club and the, um, all the places in, in Denver, the, the hospitals and the Lowry Air Force Base. And we, so I was looking for material and I was now almost, I was 15 or so. And I was playing the piano one day, practicing my Rachmaninoff and I turned on the radio. And I suppose it was because I was looking for new material. We'd done the, the Little Red Riding Hood everywhere and it was sort of worn out in Denver. They were kind of sick of seeing us do this thing. <laughs> and so I turned the radio on, I don't know, sort of wandering around as you do when you're supposed to be practicing. and there on the radio was the Gypsy Rover. You remember the Gypsy Rover came out da, 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 down to the valley so shady. He whistled and he sang till the greenwood rang and he won the heart of a lady. And that was it. I heard the song. I said, oh my God, what a great story. That We need that. We need to have we need to have Marsha and Carol dance that story and I'll tell the story. I'll sing the song and I'll get somebody to play the guitar. And I was off to the races. That's how it all started. Awesome. That, that Thank you for singing a little portion of that. <laughs> um, how did Electra Records uh, sign you? I guess you were what, 22 for that debut album, A Maid of Constant Sorrow in 61. How did the, the record deal actually come about? I was, when I was uh, 19, I'd been singing and playing the guitar for a couple of years and I collected a lot of songs. I loved it. I always bought the records. I did, but I didn't know anything about clubs or I did. It wasn't the great folk scare was not in full, full force yet. And it was mostly records that I listened to. And also we had a little Denver folklore, folklore center club where we'd get together and everybody would sing the version of of the Gypsy Rover that they knew from childhood or something. And so I, I didn't uh, do, I didn't know that it was possible to do this for a living, I had no clue. But in 1959 in March, my, my then husband said to me, why don't you get a job knowing, doing something you know how to do? So I went down to Michael's pub in uh, Boulder where we were living and I auditioned and I got a job and I've never stopped performing. <laughs> and sometimes even getting paid for it. So that was the beginning. And one of the places that I, first of all, I met Dylan in those days because um, the first place that I played at was um, a place in Denver called uh, The Exodus, the second place. Cause I first, I worked at, in Boulder at Michael's pub and I worked there a lot. And then I went to the mountains and sang at the, the uh, Gilded Garter in, in Central City. And that's where I met Dylan. He would come up. He was already in Colorado. And his name, of course, was Robert Zimmerman, as we famously remember. And uh, he was homeless. And he looked, uh, well, raggedy would be putting it mildly. And he was, always, he was always looking for a job. He was trying to get on the Hootenanny. So he would come up to um, Central City. And he used to say to me, you know, I sang at your feet. He would sit down and listen to me sitting on the floor and listen to me at the at the, that funky club that I was singing at in Central City. 
And then I sang at a place called, um, in Denver, uh, called the Bitter, not, not the Bitter End, something else. I can't remember the name of that. And again, he was still homeless. He was still um, singing. And I opened for Josh White. And then I opened for, for a guy named uh, Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson famously had, in the previous year, had called uh, Maynard Solomon and some other people in New York, I think he called uh, Al Grossman about him and said, I, I, I found this great singer, Joan Baez. And, and then he told uh, the guy who started the uh, Newport Festival, folk, uh, jazz festival who was starting a folk festival in 59 he told he told him about joan and said i think i have your your uh, your star for he brought her on actually bob gibson brought on joan Baez in his set and she sang and of course it was a, a worldwide explosion of a new talent and bob gibson was playing at at um, forever Forever Yours or whatever that club was called. And he called Jack Holzman and said, I think I found your Joan Baez. And so Jack Holzman, who was the president and founder of Electric, came to Denver and he sat in the audience at uh, whatever the name of this club is. I'll think of it any minute. Uh, Hal Newstetter was the man who founded it. And, and he said many, many, many years later, in fact, I didn't hear this story until only a couple of years ago. He came to Denver, Jack Holzman did, and he listened, but he did not introduce himself to me. And what he told me, he's still my friend. He still works with Warners. He's fabulous. I adore him. And he said to me, you know, I went to hear you, but I thought, you know, she has a gift of some sort, but I don't know if she has it for the long run. Now, had he asked me, did I have it for the long run? I would have told him, <laughs> you bet I'm here for the long run, but he didn't. So two years later, I was in New York. And again, I ran into Dylan. He was there. He was still named Robert uh, Zimmerman. It was 1961. He was still singing old Woody Guthrie songs badly, I thought, by the way. And he still looked like this raggedy tailed, you know, kid, homeless. He was still homeless. He was living in other people's apartments. And uh, Jack came to see me at the bitter end, the um, village gate where I was doing a television show with a number of people. I was there with the Clancy brothers and uh, one of the, one of the, a couple of the singers that were on Electra too. And uh, he captured my attention by coming up to me and saying after the show, Judy, my dear, you're ready to make an album. So that was how it happened. It was April 11th, 1961. I made an agreement on a, shand and a, on a handshake. And about a week later, Jack Rollins, uh, it wasn't Jack Rollins who put me in touch with the man who ran the Columbia shop uh, and I said, well, you know, I already have an agreement. And he said, do you have it signed? I said, no, I did this on a handshake and I'm old fashioned. I believe that a handshake is a commitment. So that's how I got to, to Jack Holzman in 1961. So I made my first album, Made of Constant Sorrow. You're right, I was 22. 
that year. And I was already a road warrior. I'd been out and about in all the cities. And, you know, in those days, it was sort of word of mouth. One club would tell the next that, uh, you know, that you were good. And so you'd go on and play in Oklahoma City, and then you'd go up to Canada and play at Lebu, and then you'd go to Chicago and play at the Gate of Horn. That was the way it went. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing how, I mean, I was expecting a, like a, Hey, yeah, they, he signed me with this and I just got the full backstory. That's you just came <laughs> gold. So thank you for all that gold. <laughs> and by the way, the name of the uh, club in Denver where Dylan and I met and uh, I met Bob Gibson and all kinds of wonderful people was the Exodus. And the Exodus was very famous for a long time. And it was really, a fantastic folk club and one of the many in the country in those days. Awesome. I will uh, have to punch the exodus into Google and research all about its history. I'm excited to check it out. Yeah, um, it's a great club. Denver's a great, so much fun city. Um, okay, so that was uh, sort of the run up to, you know, your breakthrough, your debut album, Made a Constant Sorrow. Um, but I know you know, you became a household name for sure with Wildflowers. By then, everybody knew you because of both sides. Now you won your Grammy for it. How did, tell me the first time that, you know, how did, how did you first discover, you know, Joni Mitchell wrote it, obviously, but you were the first to record it. Um, how was that gifted to you? I mean, that's an, that's an all-timer and, and you were lucky enough to be there and be the first to record it. I was totally lucky because my friend Al, Gro Al, Al uh, Cooper, who started Blood, Sweat and Tears, knew my phone number by heart. That's really how this happened. And he had met Joni, hadn't heard her sing, but he met her at a club one night and followed her home because she told him that she wrote songs and she was good looking, according to him. So at three in the morning, he called me and I was sound asleep, you know, dead drunk, probably 1967. And um, I had already found or been discovered by Leonard Cohen. And I had sung a lot of a lot of uh, Canadian singer songs by that time. I'd recorded Ed McCurdy, I'd recorded uh, Ian and Sylvia, uh, Gordon, Lightfoot. And so when, when Al called me, he said, uh, did I wake you? I said, yeah, you did. But then he said, I think you'll be happy that I called you. And then he put Joni Mitchell on and she sang me both sides now. So that's how that happened. What a just a beautiful song it is, too. I mean, every, you can't look at a cloud without thinking of your song. <laughs> no, that's true. It's a wonderful song, and she's a magnificent writer. And I've been privileged to record a number of her songs, including recently I did a version of River. I don't know why I didn't record it before. It's such a great song. But I put it on this recent album of mine, which went immediately to the top number one on the bluegrass charts. And I, it was a version, it is a version of River. So it was the first time I got to sing River with a group called uh, the Chatham County Line Bluegrass Group. And a friend of mine from Norway named, uh, named Jonas Fjeld. So I finally got my hands on River. Awesome. Um, so everyone, yeah, if, if you liked uh, Both Sides Now, check out River if mm -hmm. you haven't. Um, well, gosh, we could, there's so many songs we could go through someday soon, Chelsea Morning, Cook With Honey. There's so many. Um, but my listeners would kill me if I don't at least ask you about Send In The Clowns because that, that was such a huge one from Sondheim. You know, it, well, it was on Broadway with a little night music. But how did that come to you in terms of, um, hey, let's let's 
let's take this Broadway song and put it out on your album on Judith. And uh, I think Sondheim won Song of the Year with that, right? He did. I was sitting here in the apartment where I'm sitting right now. And I got a call from my friend, Nancy Bacall, who was a very good friend of Leonard Collins. And we, he had introduced her to me a couple, a few years before that. And she said, I know you're kind of struggling to find out what, what's next in the world for you. And I said, yes, I am. And she said, I'm sending this over. This was 1973. And I didn't know who Sondheim was. I, I guess I might've heard of him, but not so that it stuck. And I didn't know what Little Night Music was because I wasn't, I had, my Broadway experiences were really restricted to things like uh, the Marat Saad, maybe, and going to the living, living theater downtown. But I don't think, oh, I think I saw um, a production of uh, the play about Marilyn Monroe, I think the fall it's called. Anyway, that's about it. So I didn't know who he was or, and I didn't know about Little Night Music. So she said, I want you to play this song and then you call me and I, you know, it was a record a big cast album of Little Night Music. So I put the needle on the cut and I played the song and I immediately called uh, uh, Hal Prince, who was his producer. And I said, you know, you have a great song here on the on this show. And he said, yes. He said, uh, about 200 people have already recorded it. And I said, I don't care. I have to sing it. I'll tell you a funny story, which probably is probably incorrect, politically incorrect to tell it, but. Go for it. I recorded it in New York, of course, and Elektra was all was all primed to put it out uh, in sixty in seventy three, and the president of Elektra got a call from Frank Sinatra's people, you know, let my people call your people, and uh, they said to Joe Smith, who was the president of Elektra at that point. Uh, we'd like Miss Collins to hold her release of the song. We want to put out Mr. Mr. Sinatra's version first. And you know what they said. <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> oh, yes, we can. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for that little tidbit. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, there's so much we could talk about in your career. Um, is it... Is it true? It's not a song you recorded, but is it true that the Sweet Judy Blue Eyes was written about you, Stephen Stills? Yes, it was written about me. I don't know whether we got it on camera. We did a tour together. We did a year and a half of concerts, 115 concerts in a year and a half. Stephen and I did it. And every night we sang it together. We were on stage for two hours together, which is very unusual for a duo. And we had a wonderful time. And at the end of each of those shows, we sang Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. I think the only people that recorded that were uh, the CBS team from um, the uh, CBS Sunday, Sunday morning show. They might have it. We might have, possibly, we might have some rights to use it or play it. I don't think I've ever heard it, but I think we could get at it if we tried hard enough. When was that, that you did that? About two years ago, maybe okay. three, two years ago, I think. Gotcha, gotcha. That's really cool. I've ne yeah, I'm going to have to find that clip. I've never actually seen that, you know, you guys doing it on stage together. Um, awesome. Well, what else could we talk? I mean, you, I, you got your, you co-directed an Oscar-nominated documentary. Um, you 
gosh, you're, I remember you at Kennedy Center Spring Gala singing uh, In My Life, a beautiful rendition of that one that you did to John Lennon tribute. There's so much we could talk about, but why don't, why don't I ask you um, about um, when the Library of Congress chose Amazing Grace for the National Recording Registry. I mean, that, that must've just been a, an honor for you. For such an iconic song, they chose your version. Yeah, I was thrilled. And I got a call from, uh, from Jack Holzman. Are you talking about Amazing Grace or both sides now? Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, yeah, it was Amazing Grace. I, I didn't know that it was going on. The, the uh, Library of Congress has my archives. They bought my archives a number of years ago. Now it's time to put a bunch of, you know, you get everything out the door and then all of a sudden it starts building up over the past 10 years. Yeah. So I have to get them over here to take the rest of this stuff away. Anyway, uh, Jack called me and said, congratulations. What, what is, oh, I know why I'm confused. Because the first thing he called me and told me was that the movie that I made about Dr. Brico called Antonia, A Portrait of the, of the Woman, that is also in the Library of Congress. It was nominated for, it was put into the Library of Congress for the five movies from 1975, one of which is Chinatown. So I think we're in very good company. <laughs> then And then he called me about Amazing Grace a, a few years ago. I didn't know about either one of those things. I was, you know, I wasn't particularly in the dark. I was just on, on the road somewhere and didn't notice. Right, you're right. Yeah, you're right. The Library of Congress put your documentary into the film registry, and then they have Amazing Grace in the recording registry. Yeah, that's, so that's not bad, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, you know why? Because it, your stuff stands the test of time. I think that's that's just proof of it right there. They're, they're archiving it for future generations to listen. Once you and I and everyone else are long gone, you're, it'll still be in there, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, awesome. Well, um, just in closing, um, you know, outside of music, I know you've been a big activist. You even came into WTOP a couple of years ago in studio. We, you came in and talked about, um, I think it was a suicide prevention thing. Um, yeah. Talk about how that, you know, why that is such um, an important issue to you and yeah, and, and memories, of, memories of Clark as well. Well, I was fortunate to be raised in a very activist family. My father was very public about his political views and he talked about them on the radio and he talked about the war in Vietnam and about uh, many aspects of what goes on in society that he didn't agree with and that he was not happy with and he taught us to do the same thing. He said, you know, that nowadays they say when you see something, say something. And he always said, when you see something, do something. And so uh, we, we always had that idea about what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to be part of the solution. And so ever since then, I've taken an active part in speaking out about things. I think when I first started writing, I started talking about the secrets in the family, the main one of which was, was alcoholism. And my father was an alcoholic and I'm an alcoholic. So I didn't, I didn't know that I was allowed to speak about it. I wasn't, it was big secret. And so one of the first things I talked about was mental health and alcoholism and, and what, what had happened to me in my life because of that illness that I have. And I've been sober for almost, well, I'm in my 43rd year now of being sober. Congratulations. But, 
but I've done it with incredible help from a lot of sources, primarily a recovery program that I belong to. So I feel very strongly about recovery and I know it's possible and it's possible for any form of, of addiction, whether it's opiate, opiate addiction or alcohol or drugs. And there are, there are so many programs that are free that deal with these, with these issues, the 12 step programs being the most well-known so, so I was lucky. And along with this, of course, comes issues like suicide, which is a mental health issue. And my son took his life in 1992. Not surprising that he would. Um, he had made a number of attempts and then he was sober for a long time and then he relapsed. And of course in relapse, we know this is an illness, alcoholism and drug addiction. So we know that relapses are possible and during that relapse, he took his life. And so it's horrible. It's a terrible thing to go through. Nobody wants to know about it or share about it because it's so horrible. That was the problem though, because it's such a taboo to talk about it. So what I wanted to do was to write about it, to try to focus people on thinking about most people that I know have suicide in their families or somebody that they know or some secret that's been kept, you know, locked up for all years that nobody's talked about. So, so it's something that of course is relevant to all human beings because as Camus said, it is the primary philosophical question that all of us have to deal with, no matter who we are, where we are from. So it uh, supersedes gender, race, time, centuries. <laughs> and if you don't have it, happening to you or somebody you love, it's very interesting to think about suicide in terms of its history. I wrote a lot about that and I thought, thought a lot about it. My main job after his, after my son's death was not to kill myself because I had tried when I was a teenager, I tried. And uh, I was, I was very, I was suicidal most of the years when I was drinking. Well, we are very, very glad you stuck around. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're grateful because I mean, think of all the things that great performances that are still to come. So we're so glad you're still with us. Thank you. Um, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. And uh, wow, you know, you've been, we'll let you run. You've been more than generous with your time. I mean, man, you, you gave us a half hour of, of gold stories there. So <laughs> hey, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. God bless and have a great day and stay safe. You too. Yes. It's uh, it's a really bizarre time politically, socially, uh, and uh, <laughs> medically. This this uh, virus is ridiculous, but hopefully these vaccines will, will cut it down here. So stay safe. <laughs> stay safe. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.